The U.S. Senate confirmation hearings are underway at this hour for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Judge Jackson, you are writing a new page in the history of America, a good page. If Jackson's confirmed, she'll be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Day one of the hearings coming up. Also, as schools resume in Afghanistan following a long winter break, girls across the country aren't sure they're going to be allowed to go to school despite Taliban assurances. And after 20 years of failure, the U.S. military court in Guantanamo is admitting a 9-11 trial may never happen. The prisoners accused of arranging the attacks may plead guilty rather than face a jury. The alternative is to return to the absolute broken down process that we've lived with for 10 years. That story and much more coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The first day of Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson's Senate confirmation hearing is over. The chair of the Judiciary Committee characterized the day's remarks from members of the panel as a throat-clearing warm-up for what's likely to be a more serious exchange starting tomorrow. In her first formal remarks, Judge Jackson described her base of support as deeply rooted in faith, family, and commitment to the rule of law. Members of this committee, if I am confirmed, I commit to you that I will work productively to support and defend the Constitution and this grand experiment of American democracy that has endured over these past 246 years. Her nomination is historic. If confirmed, Judge Jackson would become the first black woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. She'd also be the first former public defender elevated to that lifetime post. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports Democrats attempted to preemptively rebut GOP criticism of Jackson by pointing to her record. Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee repeatedly called for critics to look at the nominee's record and refuted any implications that she's a judicial activist. Several Republican senators used their opening statements to question Katanji Brown-Jackson's sentencing decisions and preview tough questions about her judicial philosophy. And although Justice Brett Kavanaugh wasn't in the room, the memory of his confirmation hearing loomed large. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said Jackson would not be, quote, vilified the way he believes Kavanaugh was. Kavanaugh, who was ultimately confirmed, was accused by several women of sexual misconduct and assault from when he was in high school and college, charges he adamantly denied. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. Russia's war in Ukraine is in its 26th day. A senior U.S. defense official says Russian troops still have nearly 90 percent of their combat power available, but their campaign to get control of Ukraine is undermined by ongoing logistical problems. A Russian court has banned Meta, the U.S. tech giant behind Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, for extremist activities from Moscow. NPR's Charles Maines has more. The decision amounts to an immediate ban on most Meta services. The judge agreed with prosecutors who accused the company of condoning violence against Russian forces amid what the Kremlin calls its special military operation in Ukraine. Russia had already banned Facebook for restricting access to Kremlin-backed media. Instagram was also blocked last week after Meta decided to allow some posts urging violence against Russian troops and President Vladimir Putin. Meta later clarified the policy only concerned posts inside Ukraine and said it did not advocate violence against Russians in general. The court said its ban would not apply to the Meta-owned messaging platform WhatsApp. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Meta pays NPR to license NPR content. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of Massachusetts' all-Democratic congressional delegation are supporting President Biden's Supreme Court nominee. The Senate confirmation hearing for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson began this afternoon. Massachusetts Congresswoman Kayana Presley says Judge Jackson is exceptionally qualified. Senator Elizabeth Warren says Jackson will bring insight and perspective as a former public defender. Residents of Lemonster are remembering a local Marine captain who was killed last week in a training accident in Norway. Captain Ross Reynolds and three others died when their Osprey aircraft crashed. Lemonster Mayor Dean Mazzarella knew Reynolds, who was an Eagle Scout. At a young age, knew he wanted to fly aircraft and then knew early on he's going to apply and sign up with the Marines. And four years at the was the state ROTC and then boot camp. And I mean, 27 years old, he's accomplished a lot. Mazzarella says the city will honor Captain Reynolds in the future and offer support to his family. The first new stretch of subway to open on the MBTA system since 1987 is now up and running. Today, the T began operating the first of two new branches on the Green Line. This new track runs from Leachmere to Union Square in Somerville. The team manager, Steve Poftek, says it's the culmination of years of planning and construction that began in 2018. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled and grateful for the job, all the hard work that people have put in to get this done. It's really uh, it's really nice to see it all come together. The second portion will add more stops in Somerville and Medford. The T expects it to open this summer. First opening of this first leg of the Green Line extension also represents a shift in how users pay for fares. At Leachmere and Union Square stations, a new ticketing process debuted today. At those two stops, users should go to a vending machine, tap their Charlie card or Charlie ticket, and get a paper receipt to bring on board to prove payment. The T says it's the first of several changes to payment processes that are expected system-wide through or by 2024. In sports, Red Sox defeated the Atlanta Braves today in spring training play in Fort Myers. Final score was 5 to nothing. In the forecast, clear skies overnight tonight. Temperatures in the 30s and for tomorrow, sun shines back with highs just about the low to mid-50s. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, social security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the big picture, Russian forces invading Ukraine have shown almost no signs of advancing in the last week, according to a senior U.S. defense official today. But that defense official also noted that Russia has increased artillery shelling lately, including against civilians. Yesterday, a deadly attack in Kiev flattened a shopping center in the capital. In the southern port city of Mariupol this weekend, bombs targeted an art school, which was sheltering about 400 displaced people. Food and water are running low in Mariupol, electricity is out, but Ukrainian and local officials refuse to surrender the city. NPR's Jason Bobian joins us from Lviv in western Ukraine. Hi, Jason. Hey, Ari. Help us understand this latest round of Russian artillery attacks, given that this U.S. defense official is saying it has not resulted in military advances. Yeah, I mean, there really haven't big big advances, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, but what is happening at the moment is that you're getting these artillery strikes on multiple fronts. And while the, the forces seem to have installed on the outskirts of Kyiv, these missiles, these mortars, these shells are coming in very close uh, to, to neighborhoods that are right near the center of the city. Uh, you're also getting intense fighting and shelling continuing along the eastern side of the country, facing the border 
partner with Russia, you know, cities such as Kharkiv, Sumy, uh, they're getting shelled pretty intensely. Uh, here in Lviv, uh, the air raid sirens went off five times today and everyone had to trudge down to the bomb shelters. Um, you know, Russia also launched airstrikes north of here, what both Ukrainian and Russian officials say was on a military training facility. But what was different about that was that this was in an area of the country that had been pretty calm, uh, hadn't had many missile strikes, and it contains one of Ukraine's nuclear power plants. Let's zoom into the city of Mariupol, which has been under siege for weeks. There are reports of a humanitarian crisis. What can you tell us about the situation there? Yeah, I mean, some of the most intense fighting and shelling is going on in Mariupol. You know, it sits on the Sea of Azov uh, in Russian warships. They're offshore. Russian planes are pounding it from the air. Russian ground troops claim they're tightening a noose around it on land. Yesterday, officials in Moscow called for the Ukrainian troops in Mariupol to surrender. Uh, Ukrainian officials, in much more colorful language than this, said no way. And the two sides also can't agree on a ceasefire to allow the tens of thousands of civilians who remain there, trapped there, to leave. Today in the largest soccer stadium here in Lviv, I met a group of neighbors who just fled out of Mariupol. They'd spent two weeks sheltering in the basement of their apartment block as Russian troops and planes pounded the city with mortars and artillery. Tetyana Muhilova says it was hell on earth. Uh, There is no water, no heating, no gas, no anything. And uh, under the shelling, we try to prepare food on open fire uh, to be able to eat at least once a day. Uh, We were all covered in dirt. And uh, the person who never experienced such a thing, it's even hard to, like, imagine what it's like. She says out on the streets of Mariupol, in her words, everything was in ruins. Buildings were on fire. Others were burned out. Ukrainian troops continued to patrol in tanks. But Russian aircraft buzzed over the city. Her mother-in-law went out to try to find food and never returned. Dead bodies lay uncollected in the street. There was a man who was lying on the street near us for two days. Nobody could take him away. When Muhalova's apartment took a direct hit from a projectile, the group of neighbors started to worry that the five-story building might collapse on top of them, and they decided they had to leave. Under the constant shelling, uh, f- first we uh, we took our car from the garage, and right away the shell attacked it and totally destroyed the car. So we were left without the car. So our brother gave us his car. One of the other cars ran over shrapnel and destroyed its tires. In the end, 13 of them packed into a pair of cars. There were eight people in a tiny Soviet-era boxy Lada and five in a Skoda sedan as they drove towards the line of Russian troops blocking the road north into the heart of Ukraine. Russians stopped uh, our car, they checked our documents, asked do we have any weapons or anything like knives and stuff, and then they just let us go. When they got to Lviv two days ago, they used some of their savings to stay in a hotel room for the night. Muhilova says they all needed to soak in the shower. But today, they were here at this soccer stadium. Their only worldly goods were some clothes jammed into plastic bags at their feet. And they were waiting for the volunteers at this assistance center to find them a place to sleep tonight. That's our correspondent, Jason Bobian, who is in western Ukraine reporting there on people who have fled the city of Mariupol. Uh, Jason is still with us. And I'd like to ask you about something we've heard reports of, which is that people from Mariupol are being forced to go to Russia. Is there evidence that that is happening? 
You know, it's very hard to get solid information out of Mariupol right now. The, the Russians are saying Ukrainians are voluntarily leaving Mariupol for Russia. Ukrainian officials say, without offering really any solid evidence, that people are getting shipped to Siberia. You know, there are no aid agencies or other independent sources there right now. Uh, one of Muhilova's neighbors that I talked to at the soccer stadium today, he said he's heard some of these rumors that people are being forced to go to Russia. But he said, you know, in the midst of this ferocious aerial bombardment, the bottom line is that people in Mariupol currently face a choice, he said. You try to get to Ukraine, you try to get to Russia, or you die. And in the meantime, as you say, there is no agreement on any kind of humanitarian corridor that would allow people to escape. That's right. Yeah. NPR's Jason Bobian in Lviv in western Ukraine. Thank you very much. You're welcome. The Senate Judiciary Committee began hearings today on the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. If confirmed, she would be the first black woman on the court, as well as one of a record four female justices serving at the same time. Joining us now is NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Hey, Nina. Hey there, Juana. So, Nina, how did this first day go for her? Look, this was her easy day. She spent most of this morning and afternoon looking pleasant and interested, even smiling, as the 22 members of the Judiciary Committee made their opening remarks. And then, in the end, it was her turn. Um, as, uh, as she said when President Biden announced her nomination, the very first thing she said was that she thanked God for her blessings uh, being born in modern times in a nation where civil rights laws had changed life in Florida, where her parents were from originally, so much that they returned to live there. And she spoke about the influence of her family and uh, mentors, singling out the man she would replace on the court if she's confirmed, Justice Stephen Breyer. It is extremely humbling to be considered for Justice Breyer's seat, and I know that I could never fill his shoes. But if confirmed, I would hope to carry on his spirit. She told the senators that she would strive to do her job impartially, noting that she's been a judge for nearly a decade now, and that she takes her responsibility very seriously, an important point because of some of the pointed statements from Republican lawmakers. I have been a judge for nearly a decade now, and I take that responsibility and my duty to be independent very seriously. I decide cases from a neutral posture. I evaluate the, the facts, and I interpret and apply the law to the facts of the case before me without fear or favor, consistent with my judicial oath. Nina, aside from that opening statement, what else stood out to, to you from this first day of the hearing? Well, Senator Lindsey Graham, who often votes for Democratic nominees because he thinks it's the pre president's prerogative to name people to the courts as long as they're qualified and, um, as as the senator always put it, as senators always put it, in the mainstream. But today he was a senator with a grievance because the nominee that he had supported. Judge Michelle Childs from South Carolina, who's also African-American, was not chosen. And while he voted for Jackson's confirmation to the Court of Appeals just months ago, it sure didn't sound like he was going to do it this time. Um, he said this is Because there's been a wholesale effort of the left to take down a nominee for my state. 
and uh, don't like it very much. So what about that, Nina? Is he right? Was there a wholesale effort from the left? I think the short answer to that is probably not. It was always my understanding that Judge Jackson had the inside track that she was the leading candidate from the get-go. And while uh, Senator Graham said that uh, Judge Childs would have gotten 60-plus votes, I think that's probably a bit doubtful. Uh, he also said that because Judge Childs was not chosen, we are now facing a choice sponsored by the most radical elements of the left. So he was trying to attach uh, to Judge Jackson the views of some of the people who supported her, some of whom really are quite left. But I don't think that at any time Judge Childs was really going to get the nomination. Uh, he ha she had the support of uh, the Democratic whip in the House, and he was very aggressive about right. supporting her, as you might expect, but I never thought that was going to work. All right. That's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. We'll be following your coverage all week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, parents of school kids organizing against book bans in schools. On Wall Street, stocks skidded today. The Dow snapped a five-day winning streak to lose more than a half percent, 202 points, to close at 34,553. S&P lost a tiny fraction to finish at 44.61. The Nasdaq fell less than a half percent to end the day at 13,838. Details on March Marketplace at 6.30. It's 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Duke Science and Technology. Defying convention, embracing challenges, and racing toward solutions the world needs now. Because when collaboration leads, breakthroughs follow. Duke Science and Technology. Challenge accepted.duke.edu. Boston is said to be the fourth best city in the U.S. if you're looking for work. That's according to a new analysis from the career networking site LinkedIn. It analyzed the number of job listings and posts from users uh, indicating they've started new positions. It found Austin, Texas is the best city for job hunters, followed by Seattle and Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and then Boston. The forecast is coming up. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Should have mostly clear skies overnight tonight. A cold wind, temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunshine's back. Not as mild as today has been, though, topping out around 50 degrees. 55 now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed a hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all of their job openings. 
moreatindeed.com slash NPR. From Capital One, offering their new class of premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at WTGrantFoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Book bans at the school and state levels are galvanizing parents who oppose them. And there's a larger story at play, one that is less about books and more about democratic norms. NPR's Odette Youssef has more. On a Thursday evening in late January, more than 200 moms and some dads hopped onto a Zoom call. These are parents who've been alarmed by efforts to remove reading materials that deal with race, gender, and sexuality from their children's schools. They believe their kids have a right to freely access information. But many didn't know what to do. This online session was about teaching them to organize against the book bans. Own the patriotism, right? The, the right-wing extremists love to wrap themselves in the flag. So, But we talk about free speech, independent thinking, equality. Um, and what they're trying to do is censorship and the, basically the antithesis of that. That was Julie Womack, who helped lead the grassroots organization behind the training. It's a left-leaning, Ohio-based network called Red Wine and Blue. It includes moms from all over the country. This year, it's launched a new campaign called Book Ban Busters. Katie Paris founded Red Wine and Blue. She says the network started to become aware of this culturally conservative agenda in schools early last summer. And they were calling all of it critical race theory. But in fact, what this turned out to be was an attempt to try to censor teachers, impose political agenda on our schools, and essentially use our kids' education to do just that. Calls to ban books are nothing new in America or its schools. At times, voices on the left have driven them. To Kill a Mockingbird, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, those are longtime classics that have been challenged for their use of the N-word. But the current fervor around banning books is different. First, there's its scale. The American Library Association says in just three months last year, more than 330 books were challenged around the country. That's twice what it saw in all of 2020. Also, Paris says this banning effort has had the feel of a manufactured AstroTurf campaign, that even though some claimed it was grassroots, it was actually born of partisan interests. It was clearly organized. It was clearly targeting suburban areas that have becoming more diverse and shifting ideologically in the last several years. So we knew pretty much off the bat that this was an orchestrated effort. A report from UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education and Access lends evidence to Paris's observation. These issues are playing out in the most politically contested districts, where white enrollment dropped the fastest over the last two decades. And researchers who track dark money say there's also evidence that this controversy was manufactured by powerful interests. The more I sort of started looking at these groups, I just started seeing really overt connections to the kinds of organizations that do this routinely. That's Ralph Wilson with a group called the Corporate Genome Project. Wilson has studied false grassroots operations. Recently, he published a book about the so-called free speech debates in higher education. 
That's where conservatives were claiming a few years ago that a liberal bias on college campuses restricted their free speech. In fact, Wilson said the issue was created whole cloth by organizations tied to the ultra-wealthy libertarian Koch donor network. He says the controversy today over book bans features many of the same players. It's supposed to sort of seem like an organic grassroots operation, but when you look under the surface, it's the same groups over and over. It's the same uh, litigation groups, it's the same law firms, it's the same PR firms, and it's the same astroturf groups. Wilson says one example of these connections can be seen in model legislation that a conservative parent group called No Left Turn in Education has written. It's a template for local legislation that would, among other things, impose criminal penalties on teachers who discuss race in certain ways. Sections of it mirror, word for word, a model bill issued by a Koch-connected think tank. No Left Turn did not respond to questions from NPR about its relationship with that policy organization. But in states where similar legislation has passed, Educators have said this campaign has had a chilling effect on how they can approach topics of slavery in the U.S. and its enduring legacy. These efforts to control how teachers discuss race in schools are deeply disturbing to political scientists who study so-called memory laws. Memory laws in the sense of official prohibitions on how the past can be talked about are very much a modern phenomenon, and until quite recently, they were primarily a European phenomenon. This is George Soroka, a lecturer on government at Harvard. He says there's been a burgeoning of memory laws in countries like Poland and Hungary, mostly to downplay accounts of how some of their countrymen were complicit in the Holocaust. Soroka says the political context in those countries is similar to that in the U.S. in one key way. This is part and parcel of a crisis of democracy. We see this with the rise of populism. We see this with the rise of more xenophobic types of nationalism, this idea that uh, how the past is remembered can be weaponized and can be specified by governmental decrees. Soroka says this trend in America and other countries is deeply troubling. It's not just the latest chapter in the culture wars, but perhaps the next chapter in the unraveling of democracy. Odette Youssef, NPR News. Astronomers spend their careers looking up at the sky away from our planet. Now, though, some of them are thinking about how all this stargazing affects the Earth, specifically its climate. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports. Scientists at a French astrophysics laboratory called IRAP were recently trying to estimate their lab's contribution to global warming. And astronomer Annie Hughes says they wondered about all the telescopes they used, the ones launched into space or built on remote mountaintops. No study had ever tried to calculate the carbon emissions due to the construction and operation of all the telescopes and space missions that astronomers use to make observations. So she and her colleagues did just that for nearly 50 space-based missions and 40 ground-based telescopes. Astronomer Jürgen Knodelsader says every year, all these telescopes are responsible for the equivalent of about 20 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. Just to give you some perspective, 20 million tons of CO2, this is the annual carbon footprint of countries like Estonia, Croatia, or Bulgaria. 
He says it's like every astronomer was driving a car over 100,000 miles every year. The report appears in the journal Nature Astronomy. Travis Rector is an astrophysicist at the University of Alaska in Anchorage. He says astronomers know their greenhouse gas emissions are a problem. It's, it's a high priority. Every observatory that I've talked with and just about every astronomer knows that this is something that's important. They're discussing everything from more solar power to holding science conferences virtually to reduce travel. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Few clouds hanging around tonight, otherwise mostly clear, moonlit skies, a cold wind, temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a nice day, a little bit cooler, topping out at about 50 degrees. Then for Wednesday, partly to mostly sunny skies with temperatures in the upper 40s. Red Sox beat the Atlanta Braves today in spring training baseball in Fort Myers. Final score was 5 to nothing. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Be inspired to simply be with the works of Zanella Maholi on view through May 8th. More at gardnermuseum.org. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. And Clark, where you can begin your kitchen project by exploring Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances. Details about showrooms in Boston and Milford at clarkliving.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Deb Becker, Simone Rios, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Senate confirmation hearings for President Biden's nominee to fill the upcoming vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court kicked off today on Capitol Hill. In her opening testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson pledged to defend the Constitution and rule of law. I decide cases from a neutral posture. I evaluate the, the facts and I interpret and apply the law to the facts of the case before me without fear or favor, consistent with my judicial oath. Jackson will begin taking questions from lawmakers on the Judiciary Committee starting on Tuesday. Senate Democrats are hoping to wrap up the confirmation process by the middle of next month. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says the central bank will not hesitate to raise interest rates more aggressively if necessary as it tries to bring inflation under control. NPR's Scott Horsley reports Powell spoke to a gathering of business economists today in Washington. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates by a quarter percentage point last week as it started to crack down on inflation. Powell says the central bank could boost interest rates by twice that much at its next meeting in May if inflation doesn't start to come down on its own, as forecasters had long been predicting. That story has already fallen apart to the extent it continues to fall apart. My colleagues and I may well reach the conclusion that we'll need to move more quickly, and if so, we'll do so. 
Powell says he thinks the Fed can curb inflation without pushing the economy into a recession, but he acknowledged it's a challenging task. And he says the war in Ukraine adds even more uncertainty. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks traded lower today on Wall Street. The Dow was down 201 points. The Nasdaq fell 55. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's Green Line extension into Somerville is officially open. It took four, four years to construct, and today's service began on the first two legs of the subway line. WBUR's Daryl C. Murphy caught the first train to leave Union Square Station before dawn this morning. Passengers paid their fares like any other trip and boarded the train set to roll at 4.50 a.m. MBTA General Manager Steve Povtak was among those on board. What we see today is, is really a great thing. And it's a really, it's a gratifying day for, I know, for everyone here who's from the area, but also for the MBTA. Ravi Halasi of Somerville says he looks forward to simpler trips into Boston. It's going to be great to have a single seat downtown now, not have to worry about taking the bus and transferring. Will make things a lot easier. The rail line to Medford is expected to open later this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The average price of gasoline in the state is holding steady from yesterday. The latest survey by AAA Northeast puts the average at $4.26 a gallon. That's down nine cents from a week ago. A spokeswoman for AAA says demand for gasoline was down slightly last week because of the near-record highs in the cost of gas. The state's highest court is relaxing the mask mandate in Massachusetts courthouses as of Wednesday. The order the Supreme Judicial Court announced today removes the mandate but encourages people to wear a mask if they're not fully vaccinated or if they may be at increased risk of severe illness. People with COVID symptoms will not be allowed to enter courthouses at all. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, presenting Centro Presente, a community-led organization serving as a voice and a guide for Latin American immigrants across Massachusetts, helping them reach self-sufficiency through education programs, ESL classes, and more. Learn how you can contribute to their cause at cpresente.org. Temperatures should fall to about 35 overnight tonight, a strong wind that should continue tomorrow. Gusts through the day tomorrow, bright sunshine, highs around 50 degrees. The 40s on Wednesday with partly sunny skies, then back to the 50s to finish out the work week. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The September 11th attacks happened more than 20 years ago, but there still has been no 9-11 trial to hold the people accused of that tragedy responsible. Now the U.S. government is acknowledging there may never be one. Settlement talks are underway between defense attorneys and prosecutors to have the 9-11 defendants plead guilty rather than face a jury. NPR Sasha Pfeiffer has been following this case for years and joins us now. Hey, Sasha. Hey, Ari. Who are the defendants who might be getting these plea deals? 
These are the five men accused of helping arrange the hijacking of those four airplanes that ended up killing almost 3,000 people on 9-11. The most notorious is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. They've been held at the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, for well over a decade. And the goal has been to bring them to trial before a military jury and give them the death penalty to execute them. And many victim family members want that. But now negotiations are happening to instead have them admit guilt, avoid capital punishment, and probably instead get life in prison. Why are these negotiations happening now after so many years of attempts at holding a trial? Ari, it is so hard to convey how dysfunctional this military court is. It's basically been stuck in place for years. Having lawyers fly back and forth to Cuba is massively inefficient. They're still fighting over what evidence can be introduced and over basic constitutional questions. There's also a long COVID delay, and this is still the pre-trial stage. Meanwhile, the court and prison at Guantanamo have cost U.S. taxpayers more than $6 billion. So some people stopped believing long ago that a trial was ever going to happen, and they consider settlements a sensible outcome. I called a former legal advisor to Guantanamo, Gary Brown, who actually recommended 9-11 plea deals years ago. And here's what he said. I think realism is starting to set in and just uh, exhaustion. After so many years, the potential that the prosecution would be able to achieve a capital sentence that would then survive an appeal is very low and still years away. Plus, it's an ideal time for a new approach. There's a new judge, a new chief prosecutor, a new chief defense counsel. Just this month, one of the lead defense attorneys asked to quit. Also, President Biden has says he wants to close Gitmo, and there's less Republican opposition to that than there used to be. You said earlier that these talks are an attempt for uh, the defendants to plead guilty. They would avoid capital punishment and would probably get a life sentence. Is there a chance they could receive lighter sentences than life in prison? There's a chance. Now, I cannot imagine an outcome where someone like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would not get life without parole. He's the architect, allegedly, of the 9-11 attacks. But some of the others claim they had much lesser roles. And keep in mind, Ari, they've already been in prison for about 20 years and they were tortured in custody. So it's possible some of them could get more lenient sentences. Where would they serve their prison time? That's a key detail that would need to be worked out. If the government wants to shut down Gitmo for good, they can't stay there. But right now, there's a law that says no Guantanamo prisoners can enter the U.S. for any reason. But if that's repealed, they could serve their time in the federal supermax prison in Colorado. Or they could go to a different overseas location. But that's not a simple process because the U.S. would have to find countries willing to take them. Have we heard from the families of 9-11 victims who've been waiting more than two decades for a resolution here? Yes, and you know, some of them are inevitably upset that these defendants could escape the death penalty, but many family members are tired, they're frustrated, they're disappointed that the military court has been such a failure. So settling the cases would at least make this end. Here's Terry Rockefeller, whose only sibling died in the World Trade Center attacks. I mean, the alternative to not working out plea agreements is to return to the absolute broken down process that we've lived with for 10 years. And she also points out that even if there ever is a trial that results in convictions, the appeals would last for years. And PR Sasha Pfeiffer, thank you. You're welcome, Ari. In Afghanistan, schools are expected to reopen this week after a long winter break. In the seven months since the Taliban took over, most girls above the sixth grade have been barred from school. But the Taliban have promised to change that. As NPR's Fatma Tanis reports, not everyone is convinced. 15-year-old Mariam from Mazar-e-Sharif remembers the first day she went to school after the Taliban took over her country. 
We are not using her last name so she can speak freely. The Taliban entered our class and most of the girls ran to the back of the classroom and turned around. They didn't want to see their faces. They don't want to see the Taliban. She says the Taliban came in every day to check that all girls were wearing headscarves and gloves to cover their hands. Her assigned seat in class was in the very front in the first row, but she refused to leave her seat like her classmates. I didn't want them to know I was afraid of them. I just sat there and refused to look at them. Mariam says she's one of the few lucky older girls who've been able to go to school since the Taliban takeover. She lives in Bakh, the only province that has kept schools open for older girls. But for the vast majority of the country, girls above the sixth grade have not been allowed. And the inconsistency is because the government in Kabul have left decisions on schools to provincial Taliban officials. Meanwhile, in Kabul, 17-year-old Fatima Sadat dreams of being a psychologist. But she hasn't been to school in seven painful months, she says, and has been so worried about her future. We were all afraid that the Taliban close the schools and do not want to open them again. Also, we were not given any books to study, so we were left to our own fate. But despite Taliban assurances that schools would open for all girls, students are unclear about whether they can actually go to school on Wednesday, the official start of the semester. And Afghanistan's Taliban-run education ministry did not respond to NPR's repeated requests for clarity. Every teacher that we ask, they say we do not know, and let's wait and see what happens. I think we're still not going to know until the morning of the 23rd whether the schools actually are open or not. That's Heather Barr, the Associate Women's Rights Director at Human Rights Watch. She's based in neighboring Pakistan and focuses on Afghan women and girls. Barr says there's a risk that the Taliban might only open schools in big cities. There's the potential for some kind of photo ops at the same time that schools in rural areas you know, may not get the same treatment. She says when it comes to girls' access to education in Afghanistan, the issue is bigger than just schools being open. Class attendance for girls in provinces where schools were open dropped significantly after the takeover. That's because Barr says the daily tensions with the Taliban have had a psychological effect on girls and their families. Everybody knows that the Taliban don't really want you to go. And that's going to make people feel unsafe. And under the Taliban, there are few opportunities for women to work. Why would you study? Why would you and your family make enormous sacrifices for you to be able to complete high school, go on to university? Barr says while the Taliban do not seem to have changed their policies on women much since they were last in power in the 90s, they do seem to be more responsive to international pressure. However, it's really frustrating in this moment where this is the most serious women's rights crisis that's happened in the world since the last time the Taliban took power. And the response from the international community seems to to largely be a bit of a shrug. And with global attention on Afghanistan waning over the months, it seems unlikely that things will get better for Afghan women and girls. Fatma Tanis, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Over the weekend, a bake sale at a Ukrainian church in Kentucky raised more than $145,000 for Ukrainian refugees. WEKU's Stan Ingold attended the event with thousands of others in the town of Nicholasville. Hundreds of people had already started filling the lobby of the Ukrainian Pentecostal church shortly after the doors opened to purchase baked goods and to sit down for lunch. Linda and Gary Fleck of Wilmore, Kentucky were waiting patiently. We came to buy some baked goods and support the Ukrainians in the issues that are going on right now. There's so many refugees who need help and we're just trying to do what we can in order to uh, help those people who have been displaced by the war. As they stand in the long line of people waiting to get lunch, an announcement comes over the PA system. That is Victor Celepino, organizer of this fundraiser. He says he was shocked by how many people showed up. Very surprised and just overwhelmed with gratitude. Honestly, it's just, just been great to see people come together like that, uh, the community, just and, uh, and help out and do what they can. Absolutely, it's amazing. They laid out a large spread of baked goods and food from around the world including traditional Ukrainian food. Uh, shish kebabs, we have uh, Ukrainian borscht, we have salad, uh, we have, what else we have? We have uh, uh, pilaf. The pilaf, Victor Selipina mentioned, is known as plov in Ukraine. That is where Paul Kanonets comes in. He's heading up the kitchens. Uh, plov, that's a rice with meat, uh, cooked in the cast iron, a big pot, on a real fire. There's something that pretty much uh, most of the Ukrainian families do at home. Kanonets, like many of the members of this church, has family back in Ukraine. I have my cousins, my aunts and uncles there. They are on the western part of Ukraine, which is not struggling as much, but they have uh, a lot of people who's actually coming from uh, north and east right now. Uh, so they're actually opening up their homes, uh, trying to get as many people as they can. As for refugees, the Kentucky legislature is currently looking at a bill they would have the Bluegrass State offer aid to help relocate those fleeing the invasion in Ukraine. Silipina says this is something the congregation here has been ready for for a long time. We've had a prophecy actually years ago that be prepared for refugees. It was a prophecy in our church and people know that. Every single individual knows that. So we're definitely getting prepared. As of Sunday afternoon, thousands of people came through the Ukrainian Pentecostal Church and Silipina says they raised over $145,000 for the relief effort, and they sold out of everything. For NPR News, I'm Stan Ingold in Nicholasville, Kentucky. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, there has been fear that Russia would attack the port city of Odessa. Russian warships set off the coast. The city is vital to Ukraine's economy and is preparing for the worst. Tune in to Morning Edition tomorrow for that story, as well as the latest on the situation in Ukraine. Listen live on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in sports. Red Sox blanked the Braves in spring training play today, 5 to nothing. Celtics and Bruins are both on the road. The Celtics take on the Oklahoma City Thunder at 8 o'clock. The Bees play Montreal at 7. Coming to WBUR City Space Friday, April 8th, Booker Prize winning author Douglas Stewart talks about his new novel, Young Mungo. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EF Gap Year, an international gap program where students can learn a language, intern abroad, and help make an impact. Learn more at efgapyear.com. Back Bay Life Science Advisors, with podcasts about antibiotic development, cell and gene therapy, biotech M&A, and more. BBLSA.com. And AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com should be mainly clear overnight tonight. A few clouds around. Temperatures about 35, a strong wind tonight. And for tomorrow, bright spring sunshine. High temperatures around 50, still on the windy side. 55 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Dream State, three imaginative ballets, including a world premiere set to the Rolling Stones. Live now through the 27th, bostonballet.org. And Point 32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. The Russian war in Ukraine has disrupted a whole lot of things. Nickel, the metal, not the coin, being one of them. Uh, and all of a sudden, there's no market. There's just no market for, for nickel. And it was, it was a very surreal moment. I'm Kai Rizdal. Trouble for traders in a frozen market next time on Marketplace. That's Marketplace weeknights at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The movie Flea has already made Oscars history. It's nominated for Best Documentary, Animated Feature, and international film. Flea tells the story of a boy whose family left Afghanistan in the 1990s. As an adult, he reveals the truth of that journey, which he has told almost no one. That truth could put him and his family in danger, so the movie gives him a pseudonym, Amin Nawabi. He agreed to give us his first interview with a news outlet, along with the director of Flea, Jonas Poor Rasmussen. A key part of the movie is the long friendship between these two men. So I asked him to begin by telling us about that. Amin went first. I think Jonas was one of the first friends that I met in Denmark. And we used to take the bus to train station and then to, um, to the high school where we went to school together. And I have to say, I, I noticed Amin before he noticed me because I grew up in this very small rural village. But I noticed him one day on the, on the train. Because we, at the time, we didn't have a lot of refugees in the area. And Amin was so well-dressed. He really stood out. And I remember thinking to myself, man, that guy looks cool. <laughs> and then I was kind of surprised that we got off at the same bus stop, you know. And, and then we started meeting up at this bus stop every morning. And since then, we yeah, we've been quite involved in each other's lives. We have celebrated New Year's evening each year. We travel together. We experience a lot of uh, intimate moments, such as heartbreaks and falling in love at the same time and in, in experiencing a lot of joyous but also uh, <laughs> less joyous moments. And we always supported each other and always um, disclosed personal, intimate 
topics. So there was always this easy um, approach. You've been so close for so long and been through so much together. And also there was this secret that, I mean, you were keeping from Jonas, from, from almost everybody in your life. Yes, um, I, I was quite hesitant to talk about it, and I managed somehow to keep it to myself for a really, really long time. Uh, but of course, I mean, with Jonas, I always felt comfortable, and I think he was the first person among my friends that I disclosed that I was gay, um, and it was not very long after we met each other. So there was, I felt comfortable in Jonas's company, and it is also not surprising that I decided to tell him my story. I want us to be able to speak freely, and so I'm going to disclose something that could be considered a spoiler, although it comes relatively early in the film, which is that the human traffickers who helped you get to Europe told you you had to say that your family had all died in Afghanistan and that you were alone. Otherwise, you might not get refugee status. And in fact, we learn in the film, your family is alive and they're living in other European countries. Jonas, when you learned that truth that had been hidden from you by your close friend for so many years, how did you react? I was, of course, uh, thrilled. And I think, you know, I had expected to hear really bad stories because there were these rumors going around in high school, you know, that, that, you know, I mean, had walked all the way from Afghanistan to Denmark and that he had seen all of his family getting killed. So I think when we started talking about Amin's story, I kind of had prepared myself that I was going to hear some really harrowing things. And this was really one of the light moments, you know, to understand how close he still was with his family and that they still met up and to understand that he had a lot of family around in Europe um, and that, that they could meet up still was really heartwarming, of course. I mean, you say in the film that at one point an ex-boyfriend who you told the truth to tried to blackmail you with that information. Now that the story is public, even though you are still using a pseudonym and you're concealed by animation in the film, do you feel a sense of freedom or fear or what's the experience? I definitely feel a sense of freedom. I think it's quite limiting to not be able to disclose intimate um, information about yourself to your friends, to people that you care about. It is quite, quite uh, difficult because I always had to stop myself from telling something that I wanted to tell. I Sometimes we did something that reminded me of my family, something I did together with my family, and I wanted to share that information, but I was always prevented because of this false narrative that I didn't have any family. So that was quite difficult to not be able to share these kind of information. So yes, I feel very free. And also I feel that my friends, they know me uh, for who I am. We're seeing another refugee crisis right now as Ukrainians flee into Poland. Is there something beyond your own story that you hope people take away from this film? I think what is happening in Ukraine is horrible and heartbreaking. And in many ways, this is something that I empathize with what is happening with people who are fleeing. And it just reminds me of my family's situation. And it is, it's in a way, also really hard to process and see this. Um, because you really can imagine what you're feeling because you've been there yourself and your family there. Um, and at the same time, I think it has been amazing how everybody have been welcoming and being kind and providing help. And I was also very happy that there were so many positive stories and like personal stories humanizing refugees. But at the same time, I was quite puzzled by the different ways that refugees from Ukraine and refugees from Syria and Afghanistan uh, were treated. Uh, puzzled is a kind way of phrasing it. 
uh, puzzled uh, in a way that there were very stark difference how, for example, refugees back in 2015 were welcomed in, in European countries. Um, it was to a certain extent very hostile. So I hope that people just think that this can happen to anyone. I mean, it can happen in our backyard and it's important to be kind and help people. Jonas? You know, this just really came from our friendship. And because of that, I really hope it brings some nuance to the refugee story because, you know, Amin is a refugee, but he was a refugee. He's not anymore. And he's so much more now. You know, he's also a, an academic. He's also a house owner and a husband and a cat owner and, and all these things that kind of, you know... Two cats. <laughs> <laughs> Two cats. <laughs> Two cats, yes. yeah. Um, so, so, so there's all these things. So, so to refrain from defining people just by being a refugee, because it's not an identity, it's, it's a circumstance of life and it's something you go through. And as I mean said, it's something that can happen to everyone. And I hope this really creates a change in how we perceive refugees, uh, no matter where they come from in the future. Jonas, the friendship is so central to this film. Can you tell us about the first time you met Amin's family after all of these years that you had known him so well? But I haven't. You haven't? <laughs> no, not yet. What? I'm still waiting. Yeah, we were hoping for, you know, a big wedding when Amin and Casper got married. Um, a big Afghan wedding with everything. But then, you know, this pandemic hit and it was a very low-key wedding instead. Just the closest friends. So I, I haven't met them, actually. Um, I mean, when is this going to happen? <laughs> well, I mean, the wedding... Uh, I mean, the, the family meeting, not the, the wedding, the family the meeting. <laughs> the, the family meeting, um, hopefully soon. We've been talking with Jonas Poor Rasmussen, the director of the Danish film Flea, and also the star of the documentary who goes by Amin Nawabi. Flea is the first film ever to be nominated for Best Documentary, Best International Film, and Best Animated Feature. You can find it on Hulu. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for talking with us. Thank, thank you, you for having us. us. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put their clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Subaru, introducing the 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness, with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. Should have clear, moonlit skies tonight, a cold wind in the mid-30s tomorrow, a nice day, sunshine, a little bit cooler, topping out at just about 50 degrees. 55 now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood. A trip to Tanglewood is an escape to extraordinary. Enjoy music by BSO, Boston Pops, and more amidst the beauty of the Berkshire Hills. More at tanglewood.org. And Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity. Arts and Academics for Grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23. WalnutHillArts.org. 
I'm senior business reporter Zeninjor Nwameka, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee today presided over the confirmation hearings for the first black woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court. It's not easy being the first. Often you have to be the best, in some ways the bravest. But your presence here today will give inspiration to millions of Americans. It's Monday, March 21st. This is All Things Considered. Senator Dick Durbin talks about Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, more than 30,000 Russians have arrived in the former Soviet state of Georgia since Russia invaded Ukraine. The Russians say they're fleeing their own government. An economist in Slovakia watched the humanitarian crisis unfold in Ukraine, gathered food and clothing from friends, and found himself leading a convoy carrying tons of aid into Ukraine. And New Mexico is the latest of more than 30 states to offer free college tuition in some form. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A senior U.S. defense official says Russian forces in Ukraine have stepped up attacks on several fronts but have shown almost no signs of advancing over the past week. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the Russians are still dealing with logistical problems in a war now in its 26th day. The U.S. official says the Russians are firing more heavy artillery rounds, which are causing more civilian casualties. Russian combat planes flew more than 300 missions over the past day, a jump from the roughly 200 they've been averaging. And Russian warships off Ukraine's Black Sea coast have increased their shelling as well. But Russian troops on the ground have made no significant advances in recent days, with Ukrainian forces still holding all major cities. The official says Russia's military is still plagued by problems such as poor communications and an inability to integrate air and ground operations. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The first and likely easiest day of Senate confirmation hearings is in the books for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin. Judge Jackson, we are all just temporary occupants of the Senate, the House, even with a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. You, Judge Jackson, are one of Mr. Lincoln's living witnesses of an America that is unafraid of challenge, willing to risk change, confident of the basic goodness of our citizens. Judge Jackson opened with a pledge to defend the Constitution without fear or favor and an embrace of family and faith. I can honestly say that my life has been blessed beyond measure. Hearings resume tomorrow with extensive questions for the 51-year-old nominee. A new abortion restriction has become law in West Virginia. Details from West Virginia Public Broadcasting's June Leffler. West Virginia Governor Jim Justice has signed a bill into law that will prohibit people from terminating pregnancies based on a potential disability. A Republican supermajority in the state house backed the bill, claiming it would protect fetuses with Down syndrome. Healthcare providers say it will undermine trust between doctors and patients. Katie Kenyonis runs Women's Health Center of West Virginia in Charleston, the only clinic that provides abortions in the state. It is going to force providers to interrogate their patients' reasons for having an abortion. That is not okay. Doctors who don't comply with the law could lose their license. 
For NPR News, I'm June Leffler in Charleston, West Virginia. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell told the National Association for Business Economics today the benchmark short-term interest rate will continue to climb as long as inflationary pressures threaten the economy. Wall Street, the Dow lost 201 points, the Nasdaq off 55. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The first phase of the MBTA's Green Line extension is up and running. The project will ultimately extend the Green Line farther into Somerville and Medford. The first train rolled out of Union Square in Somerville just before 5 this morning. Cambridge State Representative Mike Conley says he hopes the project will lead to the expansion of other rail service. Whether that's the north-south rail link, the blue-red connector, or east-west rail, or even further expansion of the Green Line extension, whether it's to Porter Square or even further north. Work will continue on the second and larger portion of the Green Line extension. It will add another five stops between Lechmere and end at College Ave near Tufts University. Republican gubernatorial candidate Jeff Deal has a running mate. Today he named former state representative Leah Allen of Danvers as his choice to be the GOP candidate for lieutenant governor. The 33-year-old was elected to Massachusetts House in 2013. Two years later, she gave up her House seat to become a full-time nurse. Allen says she is committed to fighting unfair government mandates and to protecting individual liberty. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland will be the keynote speaker at Harvard's commencement for the classes of 2020 and 2021 in May. The school made the announcement today. Those graduations were deferred because of the pandemic. Garland graduated from Harvard in 1974 and earned his law degree from Harvard in 1977. Harvard announced earlier this month that New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern will speak at commencement for this year's graduating class. A man shot on an MBTA bus this morning is being treated at a hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. Transit police say the shooting happened near Morton and Blue Hill Avenue just before 10.30 this morning. The victim is a 30-year-old man who was shot in the leg. It appears the victim and the shooter were arguing. No arrests have been made. In the forecast, look for nice night tonight. Clear, moonlit skies should have a chilly wind blowing. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, sun shines in a little bit cooler, topping out at about 50 degrees. Then for Wednesday, partly sunny with highs in the upper 40s. 55 degrees now in the Boston area at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance. Small business protection for more than vehicles with insurance guidance designed to keep companies moving forward. More at Progressive commercial.com. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Today, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson sat before the Senate Judiciary Committee for the fourth time in her life, but it's her first as a nominee to the Supreme Court. She thanked her family, mentors, and those who came before her for the opportunity, and included a tribute to Judge Constance Baker Motley, the first Black woman appointed to the federal bench with whom she shares a birthday. Like Judge Motley, I have dedicated my career to ensuring that the words engraved on the front of the Supreme Court building, equal justice under law, are a reality and not just an ideal. If confirmed, Jackson would be the first black woman to serve on the nation's highest court. Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Dick Durbin is presiding over the confirmation hearing, and he joins us now. Welcome back to the program, Senator. Good to be with you. 
All right, Republicans have spent a lot of time today focusing not on Judge Jackson, but on how Democrats have treated Republican nominees in the past. They've been calling it character assassination. Senator, what do you make of that? Listen, there's a list of grievances about what's gone on before us, and uh, we can certainly uh, talk about those and write or rewrite the history. I'm focused on today, and today we have an opportunity to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court with a lifetime appointment and an extraordinary nominee uh, who has been approved by this committee on three separate occasions. She wasn't in the room when these uh, past occurrences happened. Uh, she's not had, doesn't have any responsibility for that. Uh, we can work this out among us as members of the committee and should. But let's try to create an example with the way we treat this nominee that uh, chairs myself and others in the future can use as a model. To that point, Senator, do you believe that your Republican colleagues will treat Judge Jackson fairly in this process? Most of them. And, you know, the leadership in the Senate, Republican leadership, said we're going to be respectful and civil and we're not going to do character assassination. Uh, I'll just have to tell you, there are one or two Republican senators who didn't get the message, but that's okay. We're going to press forward. I think when it's all said and done, most people would agree that what happened today was uh, a civilized exchange. Now, she was at a terrible disadvantage today. She sat at the table. Each senator had 10 minutes. Some used it to praise her. Some used it to attack her. And she had to sit there quietly and absorb all the blows. Tomorrow, she gets to respond. And I think it'll be a much better day uh, for the committee. So this is the end of day one. It is expected to be a four-day confirmation process. I wonder, at this point, do you believe that Judge Jackson will get any Republican votes, either on the Judiciary Committee or on the Senate floor? I, yes, I think there's a good chance she will. I'm at least hoping for that. I, nobody has looked me in the eye and told me how they're going to vote, on either side for that matter. So I'm not presuming anything. I thought after the hearing, I'll have a chance to talk to members on both sides and see where they stand. What I did do is reach out to Republican senators quietly, personally, and say to them, I want you to feel that you've got all the information and all the opportunities to ask her questions that you, that you wish. And we've done that. She has met so far with 45 senators every member of the Judiciary Committee, and many others, uh, and really made herself available to ask questions of all kinds. Some of them have lined her up and said, can you stay for 20 minutes and take a picture with every member of my staff? Uh, some of them didn't treat her quite that same. Uh, but the bottom line is, I'm going to work to make this a bipartisan roll call. It's good for the Senate, be good for the Supreme Court. I want to ask you about something that we heard today from Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. He expressed some disappointment that Michelle Child, a black judge from South Carolina, was not President Biden's nominee. He said that Childs could have gotten Republican support, but was the victim of a, quote, dark money a campaign from dark money groups on the left. Do you believe that outside advocacy groups play too much of a role in this process? No, not uh, not as far as I know. I mean, uh, I, I don't contact these folks. We don't sit down and strategize or plot. Uh, I'm, I'm playing this totally above board in the committee, uh, and I don't know what happened to Judge Childs. I had a positive impression of her. Had President Biden chosen her the South Carolina nominee, uh, I would have been happy to sit down and probably support her just as enthusiastically as I do uh, w with this judge. But that didn't happen. I don't think it was a big left-wing conspiracy. I think Joe Biden made the decision. He had it narrowed down to three or four people, and he chose Judge Brown. Senator Durbin, in about 30 seconds we have left here, you took note of, as did Judge Jackson herself, the history that she is stepping into as the nominee. She would be the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Tell us quickly why that matters so much. 
it matters because it really says that America is moving forward, uh, that we recognize as a nation that we need to create opportunity. The point I made, the first meeting of the Supreme Court in 1790 was to a nation of 4 million people and 700,000 black slaves. Neither women of white or black women had an opportunity under the Constitution to vote. How much we've changed for the better. We're giving women the rightful opportunity, in this case, to serve on the highest court of the land. That's Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin of Illinois. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Russia's devastating attack on Ukraine has prompted an outpouring of sympathy and solidarity. In Eastern Europe, which once depended on Ukraine, it has also created a network of volunteers collecting humanitarian aid donations and driving them into Ukraine themselves. NPR's Joanna Kakisis reports from Prezhov, Slovakia. This city of Baroque churches is roughly a 90-minute drive from the Ukrainian border. The locals used to drive to Ukraine to shop or sightsee. Today, they're preparing to drive in nine tons of humanitarian aid. Detergent, dishwashing liquid, Kleenex, we've got beans, some pasta. I'm in a warehouse with Vlad Bench, the tall, red-headed volunteer running this mission. He helps load supplies, all donated, into four giant white vans. Medicine and food goes directly to east of Ukraine. But in the western part of Ukraine, they need to prepare for refugees. They keep tents, they keep uh, sleeping bags, bed linens. Bench, who works as an economist here, made his first humanitarian aid delivery right after the war began. Now he's joined by dozens of volunteers, like Misha Puskarova, who's about to jump into a van filled with diapers and baby formula. And then we're going to go all of us together, one after another, in like a convoy. Bench and I jump into another van, and the convoy begins its journey to Ukraine. You know, when the war started, I wanted to help somehow. I started to call to Slovak institution, you know, like Slovak government, regional administration, and everybody was not very well organized, you know. I think it was really a shock for everyone. No one could believe <laughs> the war started. Yes, yes. But nobody wanted to deliver the aid to Ukraine side. One fear is the war itself. The other is bureaucracy. Customs officers sometimes classify the aid as exports. Clearing this up can take six, seven hours. Paperwork delays are on Bench's mind as we arrive at the border with Ukraine. A young border guard in fatigues approaches us. Is that a Slovak border guard or Ukrainian? This is uh, Ukrainian. Yep, there's a flag, blue and yellow flag. Our passports are quickly checked, and we drive on to the customs line. It is not moving. Inside, the customs building is bare bones, staffed by exhausted-looking men in T-shirts and hoodies. Bench hands one of them the convoy's paperwork, but the customs agent rejects it because of a missing phone number. So we need to change all declarations for the cars, you know, so it's crazy. Even when a country's at war, the bureaucracy churns on. It takes us roughly three hours just to cross the border into Ukraine, but less than an hour to reach our destination, Mukachevo. This Ukrainian city has a medieval castle and a very modern display of blue and white patriotism. Ukrainian flag after Ukrainian flag. Look at that. The whole town is lined with them. We arrive at a warehouse in Mukachevo where local volunteers unload the donated goods from Slovakia. 
One is Maxim Koftun, a 42-year-old baker and father of two who recently fled from Kyiv with his family. To be a volunteer for me just to keep my mind calm. So for me it's somehow the way to be involved and to participate, to support. Bench looks sad as he listens. You know, I'm just so sorry for these people, you know, that uh, their lives totally changed. And just thinking, you know, a lot of ideas of how we can help them more. Here, near the border with NATO, Mukachevo feels safe. City officials estimate that around 30,000 refugees have arrived in the city of about 100,000, and hundreds more arrive every day. So everyone here is helping. We are in the volunteer center. Uh, it's probably one of the biggest in our city. We are helping to everything we can. Including 15-year-old Georgi Palach. As a citizen of Ukraine, it's my obligation because I'm too young to be a soldier, so probably it's the way I help. He and his classmates spend all of their free time sorting clothes to give to people who have just fled here. Sometimes it's very hard to look even on them because they are always sad. You need to joke with them, you need to make them happy. He says he believes Ukraine will win this war that Russia started and emerge stronger than before. On the drive back to Slovakia, everyone is silent. We go through a line of trucks, and it's quick. But the line for private cars stretches for miles. The cars are all Ukrainian. The next day, I meet Bench and the other volunteer, Misha Puskarova, at a restaurant in Prashov. They say this humanitarian crisis shows how much their country has changed. I think in these post-Soviet countries, like many people are used to the old system that the state took care of everything. Yeah, my parents, they are like constantly talking about like this is government job, or <laughs> else like it never really crossed my mind. I'm not waiting for government to solve this problem. These grassroots humanitarians transport tons of supplies to their neighbors in Ukraine every week. They're now stocking up for their next trip. Joanna Kakisis, NPR News in Preshov, Slovakia, and Mukachevo, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The secret sauce of Chinese food coming up on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks skidded today. The Dow snapped a five-day winning streak to lose more than half percent, 202 points, to close at 34,553. S&P lost a tiny fraction. It finished at 44.61. The Nasdaq fell less than a half percent to end the day at 13,838. More business coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emanuel Music, continuing its tradition of exploring Bach's most challenging works. St. John Passion, this Saturday at 7, emmanuelmusic.org. A class action lawsuit's been filed today against Mansfield-based Creative Services for two data breaches last year. The suit claims Creative Services failed to properly secure and protect the personal information of candidates for employment that it ran background checks on. The suit alleges the breaches exposed information about more than 164,000 people. The information included Social Security numbers. WBUR has reached out to Creative Services for comment. The company has earlier acknowledged a breach and said it's offering credit monitoring to those who are affected. This is WBUR. 
Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Red Sox blank the Braves in spring training play today 5 to nothing. Celtics and Bruins are both on the road. The Celts take on Oklahoma City Thunder at 8. The Bees play Montreal at 7 o'clock. Clear moonlit skies tonight. A cold wind in the mid-30s. Tomorrow a nice day. Sun shines in. A little bit cooler, topping out at just about 50 degrees. 54 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of a line probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. One of the great cornerstones of Chinese culture is its food. And at the heart of China's many regional cuisines is one secret sauce. NPR's Beijing correspondent Emily Fang brings us into a kitchen to discover what it is. Chef Peter begins his day at 2 p.m., mixing together the garlic, ginger, soy sauce, sugar, and a boatload of spices that form the base of his cuisine. Then he carefully unwraps a plastic bag with his secret ingredient. It's a sauce that's 40 years old. This is just one small element, but it's crucial to the overall taste. The sauce is called lu or lu shui, and basically every Chinese regional cuisine uses some variation of it. Usually it's made out of a base of salt, such as soy sauce, sugar, and a mix of spices. And to Peter, the sauce is a living, breathing thing. You have to raise an old loose sauce like raising a child. You might be wondering by now, the sauce is not literally 40 years old. But it comes from an unbroken chain of sauces dating back to the first one his mother in Shanghai made in the 1980s. Peter always saves the remainder of each lu batch and uses the old sauce to start the next new batch of sauce. It's a bit like sourdough, where the old seeds the new and the flavor intensifies over the years. This is the way most lu sauces are made. Think about it. In one dish of lu braised duck, you're eating the essence of at least seven or 8,000 ducks that have passed through it. Once an unknowing waiter threw out the loo sauce Peter was saving for the next day's dishes. I fired him. Those who are in the business know that this loo is like my life, and it's a little part of my mother. So throwing it away is like disrespecting my ancestors' tombs. Tao Yu, a food writer and historian at Jinan University, says lu at first simply denoted any kind of salt water used as a marinade for cold boiled meat and vegetables. I believe the emergence of the lu we know today is around by the Ming Dynasty, more than seven centuries ago, when you saw the emergence of privatized businesses and markets. To attract new customers, these new private food vendors began introducing new flavors and new ways to cook lu by adding spices or soy sauce for color. In the centuries since, lu has diversified, taking on the characteristics of each regional cuisine. 
For example, in spicy Sichuan province, Lu is used to add flavor and intensity, so Sichuanese use a ton of spices in their lu. But in Cantonese cooking, they want the flavor of the ingredients to come out, so they use far less salt and spice. Some lu is even alcoholic, like zao lu, a light marinade made from the fermented glutinous rice mash left over from brewing Chinese yellow wine or huangjiu. Four hours later, in Peter's kitchen, his much sweeter Shanghai-style lu has simmered down to a dark, thick soup. Peter reduces it further until it becomes a molasses-like syrup. The sauce coats each morsel. The juices mix evenly with the fat of the pig trotters in this case. The intense old lu sauce is what's made Peter's restaurant a well-hidden gem in Beijing through word of mouth only. In fact, Peter expressly forbade us from using his full name or mentioning his restaurant in this piece because he does not want too many customers. We have a saying, fame brings trouble. And this restaurant is my playground. I don't want too many people to come. Cooking each night is also a little risky. Peter says he goes all in every time, using up all his old lu sauce for pork, beef, and duck for each dinner. No backups, no insurance policy. We're extremely careful, extremely careful with the sauce. I ask about vacations. Would he ever entrust another person to feed and take care of his lu sauce if he's away? No, Peter says. The sauce is just too important to him. Emily Fang, NPR News, Beijing. New Mexico is the latest state getting headlines for offering free tuition. A third of U.S. states already offer it in some form, and it means different things in different places. New Mexico's benefits are now among the nation's most generous, but there are limits, as Alice Fordham of member station KUNM in Albuquerque reports. The celebration when Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed free tuition into law included a mariachi band from Western New Mexico University. New Mexico is the first state in the nation to have this as part of their education platform. It's part of a slew of measures designed to increase enrollment at universities and revitalize New Mexico's workforce, which lacks skills. There's a severe shortage of professionals like teachers and nurses here. Lujan Grisham is part of a movement sometimes called College Promise. Eddie Conroy is an analyst at the New America Foundation who's advocated for free tuition. These guarantees come in a bunch of different forms. We're up to about 20 states that have some form of state-level program. In terms of the scope of who it covers and what it covers, New Mexico's initiative does go further than most. New Mexico's program is one of the most generous, if not the most generous, promise program that we've seen instituted so far. But state lawmaker Larry R. Scott points out one big catch. The free tuition is only fully funded for one year. If we were looking for an effective program, that uh, one-year commitment to the project was not really the appropriate course of action. The law Governor Lujan Grisham signed means most of the $75 million funding free tuition comes from federal pandemic relief. If we were going to do this, we probably should have committed at least a few years of resources to it to see how efficient the program was and whether it was going to be effective. 
The expectation is that the scholarship will be renewed next year. An oil and gas boom here means the state will end this year with a projected $2.5 billion surplus. But Scott says oil and gas busts happen too. We've gone from being flush with money to not having enough to fund uh, K-12 education. Just five years ago, New Mexico had to dip into education funding to balance the state budget. But even a year's free tuition means a lot to someone like Itzayana Banda. She couldn't afford to stay in school, even when a favorite teacher tried to encourage her. But no, it got to the point where I was like, no, I, I need to stop. It's either like I have uh, money for rent, for gas for other things, or it's I finish my education. Banda now has another option and clearly misses studying to be a teacher at Central New Mexico Community College. My favorite class, it was math for teachers, and they would show us there how we could show um, the students how to count, how to capture their attention. New Mexico residents can apply the tuition assistance to the cost of bachelor's degrees, vocational certificates, and other qualifications. Emily Wildow, an analyst for New Mexico Voices for Children, says publicly funded tuition pays dividends long term. Because as it trains more and more people, that's an investment in our economy. So we have a better educated workforce and that will help us attract new industries and create better paying jobs. If oil and gas do end up funding free tuition longer term in New Mexico, Wildow hopes the result will be a workforce that's less dependent on a single industry for prosperity. For NPR News... I'm Alice Fordham in Santa Fe. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports. Red Sox shut down Atlanta today in spring training 5-zip. Bruins are up in Montreal. Celtics are in Oklahoma. Patriots are trying to shore up their offensive line. Today, the team re-signed Trent Brown to a two-year deal. He is six foot eight and weighs 380 pounds and is known for being effective at pass protection and run blocking. Brown only played nine games last season because of a calf injury. Bruins have been on the busy side this trade deadline day in the NHL. The Bees have traded Zach Seneshin to the Ottawa Senators. In exchange, defenseman Josh Brown will come to Boston. Also today, the Bruins re-signed Jake DeBrusque to a two-year extension. In the forecast, look for temperatures down around 35 tonight, a strong wind overnight that should continue into tomorrow. Look for sunshine tomorrow. Highs just about 50 degrees. 55 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by April 18th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. And Synovian, advancing therapies for serious central nervous system conditions. Through science, Synovian can help lead the way to a healthier world. More at synovian.com. When is the last time a former public defender became a justice on the United States Supreme Court? Answer, never. But should she be confirmed, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson would be the first former public defender on a bench full of former prosecutors and corporate lawyers. So what difference would that make on the highest court in the land? I'm Magna Chakrabarty. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Pentagon says it's seeing clear evidence that war crimes are being committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. Spokesperson John Kirby says the department continues to see indiscriminate attacks on civilians that, in many cases, are intentional. 
there's no justification for it. So I'm not even going to try to do that. Uh, but clearly, uh, they, are, they are causing increased numbers of, uh, of civilian casualties. Russia today warned that relations with the United States are on the verge of a breach. The Kremlin cited President Biden's recent criticism of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Biden last week called Putin a war criminal and blasted him for what Biden called atrocities being committed by Russian troops in Ukraine. The White House says the president will travel to Brussels this week to meet with NATO allies. NPR's Franco Ardonia's reports Biden will also travel to Poland on Friday to meet with his Polish counterpart. The White House says Biden will meet with President Andrzej Duda to discuss the, quote, humanitarian and human rights crisis resulting from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The United Nations says there are now more than two million refugees who have fled into Poland. President Biden is traveling to Europe later this week to meet with NATO allies and G7 and European leaders to discuss international efforts to support Ukraine. World leaders are increasingly concerned about the crisis expanding into neighboring countries. Biden has repeatedly said that the United States will not send U.S. forces into Ukraine, but at the same time will defend, quote, every inch of NATO territory. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Stocks traded lower today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 201 points. The Nasdaq Composite also traded lower, down 55. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Residents of Lemonster are remembering a local Marine captain who was killed last week in a training accident in Norway. Captain Ross Reynolds and three others died when their Osprey aircraft crashed. Lemonster Mayor Dean Mazzarella knew Reynolds, who was an Eagle Scout. At a young age, knew he wanted to fly aircraft, and then knew early on he's going to apply and sign up at the Marines. And four years at uh, Worcester State ROTC, and then boot camp. And I mean, 27 years old, he's accomplished a lot. Mazzarella says the city will honor Captain Reynolds in the future and offer support to his family. The first new stretch of subway to open on the MBTA system since 1987 is now up and running. Today, the T began operating the first two new branches on the Green Line. The new stretch runs from Leachmere in Cambridge to Union Square in Somerville. T General Manager Steve Poftek says it's the culmination of years of planning and construction that began in 2018. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled and grateful for the job, all the hard work that people have put in to get this done. It's really uh, it's really nice to see it all come together. The second portion will add more stops in Somerville and Medford. The T expects it to open the summertime. The opening of the first leg of the Green Line extension also represents a shift in how users pay for fares. At Leachmere and Union Square stations, a new ticketing process debuted today. At those two stops, users can go to a vending machine, tap their Charlie card or Charlie ticket, and get a paper receipt to bring on board to prove payment. The T says it's the first of several changes to payment processes that are expected system-wide by 2024. Nursing home workers in Saugus are expected to go on strike next Wednesday. Today, the union that represents workers at the Saugus Rehabilitation and Nursing Center authorized a one-day strike. Employees say reasons for the strike include low wages and poor management at the facility. The nursing home employs about 50 workers. The facility has not returned a request from WBUR for comment on the pending strike. Endangered right whales have been spotted east of Boston. That's prompted federal regulators to keep in place a request for boats and ships to slow down in the area until April 2nd. Researchers spotted the whales last Friday. The request asks boats and ships to avoid the area or keep their speed below roughly 11 miles an hour. That's to avoid hitting the endangered animals. 
in the forecast. Some sunshine continuing through this evening, then mostly clear tonight, falling to the mid-30s. Gusty winds around to now, tomorrow, another sunny day. Not as mild as today has been, topping out at just about 50 degrees. Some sunshine and eventually some clouds on Wednesday. 54 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tbilisi, Georgia, standing at the bottom of a big hill. At the top of it is the statue that greets everybody who arrives here. It's a giant woman, Mother Georgia, and she holds in her left hand a cup of wine to greet people who arrive here in peace, who arrive as friends. In her right hand, though, she's holding a sword to greet those who come as enemies. Among those arriving right now in rainy Tbilisi, Russians, thousands of them. According to Georgia's interior minister, more than 30,000 Russians have arrived here since Russia invaded Ukraine. And while some of them have since moved on, many say they're staying. Now, this is a very different exodus from the one unfolding from Ukraine. Russians are fleeing not war, but their own government. And they say they can't go back, that it is not safe, they can't work, they are angry at what their country is doing. We're going to spend these next few minutes sharing the stories of three Russians we have met here in Tbilisi, starting with Alexei Voloshinov. He's the youngest of the people you're about to meet, just 20. But we're starting with him because we can share where his story begins, back in Moscow. This is Alexei walking through the botanical gardens, what Russians call the pharmacy garden, central Moscow on March 4th. It feels like real, not real. I still cannot believe that uh, tomorrow I'm going to leave my country, maybe for my whole life. I hope not, but <laughs> this is a possible option. He says this was not a move of choice, that as a young journalist, he was afraid to stay in Russia. And as a young man, he was scared of getting drafted to fight against Ukraine. But still, I would really like to come back one day to the great Russia of future. <laughs> future great Russia, yeah. Just a little over two weeks later, we meet up with Alexei at a park, this time here in Tbilisi. Hello. Hi, Alexei. We walk together Hi. to a cafe to get out of the rain, and I ask if he's managed to pick up much Georgian yet. Having just arrived myself, I am finding the language and its alphabet beautiful, but hard. Uh, I know, Gamarjoba, Madloba. That's hello and thank you. I know Tcho, this is yes. And I know Ara, this is no. <laughs> yeah, so. That's the beginning. <laughs> yeah. In the cafe, over plates of salty Georgian cheese and walnuts, I ask Alexei what happened after he left Moscow. Well, uh, the thing is, I didn't have any plans. First, he flew to Armenia, where he thought he would stay for a bit. Then, after just two or three days, uh, my father called me and said uh, that police was uh, looking for me in Moscow. And that day, I decided to leave Armenia and move to Georgia because uh, there is no extradition so, from here. Did you know anyone in Tbilisi? Well, um, no. 
He met other Russians here. They went apartment hunting, something that has gotten really hard to do in recent days. There's the fact that rents are going up because the market is flooded with Russian house hunters. And there's the fact that not everyone wants to rent to Russians, given Georgia's complicated history with its giant neighbor. The first apartment Alexei tried to rent. The host has asked us if we're Russians. We said yes, and uh, she said that she cannot give us this place to live because uh, Russian soldiers have killed her son in 2008 during the war between Russia and Georgia. So this is really understandable. They finally found a place. Alexei says he's looking for a job, starting to feel settled. After I left the country, it was uh, the first time I could sleep and eat normal. So worried. Yeah. Would you like to go back, though? Do you want to live back in Russia? Of course. Of course, yes. Uh, The first possibility, after the Putin's uh, regime is going to fall, I will come back, like, the next day. We've arranged our next interview at a pub called the Black Lion, over pots of steaming tea. Lev Kalashnikov, like the gun, also just arrived in Tbilisi from Moscow early March. He's already a mover and shaker in the exile community here. He's a tech entrepreneur trying to help other entrepreneurs set up shop, move their businesses here. He says Tbilisi is hotter than anywhere right now, partly thanks to so many Russians with ambition and money pouring in. But it's tricky trying to navigate bureaucracy, paperwork, all in another language. He tells us the story of his second day here. He was standing in a huge line trying to buy a SIM card. And in the line there was 50 people in front of me and 50 after me. And I was looking around and I'm saying, wow, I did this step before, I can share my experience with these people. So he created a channel on the Telegram messaging app, which everybody here seems to use. A chat room, basically, that people could join by scanning a QR code. And started showing to people around me. You, in the line? You're in, stand, the line. in the line you created this QR code. Yeah, when I left this uh, place, it was like 30 people in the chat. And uh, later that day it was 200, next day it was 700 people. It kept growing. Some 5,000 people are following that Telegram channel now, swapping tips on all kinds of stuff. Mainly are people asking about how to transfer money. 15% of people are asking about schools and uh, kindergarten. Many asking about uh, how is it going on the uh, land border to cross over over lands. Lev now runs several Telegram channels for Russians coming to Georgia. He says he is constantly fielding questions that he tries to answer even when he can't help, like a recent message he got from a man in Russian-controlled Crimea whose wife is stuck in the war in southern Ukraine. This guy uh, sends me a message that she got very uh, ill and there is uh, fighting on the streets and the bombs are going on. I don't know what to do with that. What, what can I do with that? But for some reason, people are texting me this. And I cannot help it. His voice breaks. His eyes well up with tears. He reaches for his tea, takes a long breath. Every single uh, message that I get uh, is a uh, tragedy. Our final stop for the evening is a hole-in-the-wall bar in Old Tbilisi. It's called Ploho Bar. Ploho means bad in Russian. (laughs) A dozen or so people pack into this tiny space, all speaking Russian, chugging beers, taking shots of vodka. The walls are scrawled with marker, Russian sayings, crude drawings. 
23-year-old Nastasia Dubuvitskaya just left Moscow a week ago. She's working tonight behind the bar pulling beers. I wanted to go to rallies after the war started, but I knew that it would be um, more dangerous. Nastasia says she was detained for seven days for attending a rally. She believes if she had stayed in Russia and kept protesting, she wouldn't be out so soon. <laughs> I just decided to go here uh, because I knew that I can help Ukraine and Ukrainians here better than from Russia. She points to a Ukrainian flag hanging on the wall. Next to it, a QR code for a website to donate money to the Ukrainian army. Nastasia says she's saving money to donate. It's part of the reason she's working here at the bar. But it's hard, she says. Her last day in Moscow, she went to see her dad. He's still there. We talked a lot, and I've seen him crying for the first time in my life because he was so worried, and he said that there is no future in Russia. Just run and find something new. No future in Russia, so just run, find something new. So she did, one of tens of thousands of Russians who have run from their country since it invaded Ukraine nearly one month ago. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A China Eastern Boeing 737 airplane crashed today in a remote, mountainous region of southern China. The Civil Aviation Administration of China confirms the crash, saying there were 132 people on board. And rescue teams are now trying to reach that crash site. NPR's David Shaper has more. China Eastern Airlines Flight 5735 took off from the airport in Kunming on its way to Guangzhou at about 3.15 in the afternoon local time, 5.15 a.m. universal time. Ian Pechnik of the Global Flight Tracking Service Flight Radar 24 says within about 15 minutes, the plane reached its cruising altitude of about 29,000 feet, and it remained there with everything appearing normal for about 50 minutes. At 6.20, there was a, uh, a first rapid descent from 29,100 down to 7,425 feet Fetchnik says the 737 briefly recovered, rising back up to 8,600 feet. And then from there began another uh, rapid descent. And the last data point we have is at 622 at 3,225 feet. And that is the altitude of the terrain in the mountainous region of southern China where the plane crashed. The impact of the crash sparked a forest fire so big it was visible from space on NASA satellite images. Anthony Brickhouse teaches aviation safety at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. He says plane crashes are statistically more likely on takeoffs and landings, not mid-flight like this one. Investigators on the ground will be looking at the actual wreckage. Um, even if this aircraft, you know, came in at what we would call a high-velocity, high-angle type impact, um, there's still going to be clues at the crash site that can help with the investigation. Former Boeing safety engineer Todd Curtis with the website airsafe.com says what stands out is that the plane appears to have flown straight down into the ground at a high rate of speed. Uh, and there was also nothing in the information that's been released so far that shows any sort of trauma to the aircraft. It wasn't trailing smoke. It wasn't in pieces. It seemed to have been largely intact when it hit the ground. But Curtis says it's far too soon to pinpoint any potential cause. Everything has to be looked at. The performance of the pilots, whether or not there was any sort of medical condition, whether or not they were fatigued, whether or not it was a, an accident or deliberate action. 
The plane that crashed was a 737-800, a version of the popular Boeing jetliner called NG for next generation that preceded the troubled 737 MAX. So this plane did not have the MCAS flight control system that was partially to blame in two MAX crashes in recent years. In a statement, Boeing says our thoughts are with the passengers and crew of China Eastern Airlines Flight 5735 adding that the company is in contact with the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board and ready to assist with the investigation led by Chinese authorities. David Schaefer, NPR News. For less than a month, roughly three and a half million people have fled Ukraine, most of them women and children. When I see children are suffering, when I see women and elderly are suffering, it gives me all the images that I have uh, uh, from my own country. I see myself in these kids. I went through this, I exactly fear pain. I know how that feels. I've been in their place, and it's a place of terror. Today on NPR's daily podcast, Consider This, we hear from refugees who fled Vietnam, Syria, and Afghanistan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, Oregon is channeling millions of dollars into helping people battle addiction, but now the state is struggling to come up with a workforce to do it. Boston is said to be the fourth best city in the U.S. if you're looking for work. That's according to a new analysis from the career networking site LinkedIn. It analyzed the number of job listings and posts from users indicating they've started new positions. It found Austin, Texas as the best city for job hunters, followed by Seattle, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, and then Boston. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jose Mateo Ballet Theater with Dance Saturdays. Discover Salsa Party Culture with Salsa y Control in Out of Control, Saturday at 7, BalletTheater.org. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. A nice dry evening, moonlit skies overnight tonight, a cold wind, temperatures in the mid-30s. For tomorrow, sunshine again, a little bit cooler, topping out at about 50 degrees. This is WBUR. BA2 is actually a version of Omicron, which is a variant that we saw here over the winter. The version we saw is called BA1, and this new one, BA2, is even more contagious. And we know that the one we saw was already quite contagious. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. States will soon invest unprecedented amounts of money in addiction recovery after recent settlements with drug companies. Oregon has already increased funding. Voters there passed a law in 2020 to channel millions into battling addiction. As Katie Riddle reports, the obstacle now is finding the workforce to do it. Like many people who work in this field, Stacy Cohen is in recovery herself. I started on pills which uh, moved me to heroin. Cohen lost everything. The people on the streets, you think that they actually are there for you, and you quickly realize that nobody's there for you except for yourself. Now that she's in recovery, her job is to be there for others struggling with addiction. I just show them compassion, you know, um, listen to them. 
The facility she works at is called Club Hope. It's in the Portland suburb of Gresham. People can come here to bathe, eat, or just hang out and warm up. Wait, you're doing shower? Mm -hmm. Okay, let me yeah. grab you a towel. On this morning, she directs a man to the shower stall. People can also access social services here. The idea is that the center provides a pathway out of addiction. Cohen says the work anchors her own recovery. I could go get a job, you know, making more money than this, but, but I love my job. It's like, this is my other family. Passion's driving people in the field, and the flip side of that coin, it's a, it's a very um, emotionally draining position to be in. Monta Knutson is the executive director at Club Hope. He says it's hard to keep people in these positions. The work can be traumatic. Some clients go back out on the street, some die of overdose. You can also feel like, did I do enough? Or, did, you know, there's just all kinds of ways your mind plays into that. And just the sadness of seeing another person lose their life due to this disease, which is treatable. 30% of Oregon's jobs in addiction and recovery are vacant. But organizations like Club Hope can't operate without employees like Cohen. What's up, Chris? On this morning, a client named Chris Van Dan comes in to charge his phone. Bark dust clings to his clothes from sleeping outside the night before. He's recently had a big breakthrough. He's getting his own place in a week. We were so excited. He's also nervous. What if it doesn't work out, he asks Cohen. You don't even think about what's going to happen next if this doesn't work. God, it's so hard though sometimes. I know, but you got to change your thinking. It's a brief exchange, but it's these kinds of empathetic interactions with staff that keep clients coming back. The recent influx of cash has made some difference in staffing. Dozens of peer mentors have been hired in organizations across the state. The jobs are paying more. Dawn Marks is a manager here. Her staff have gone from making $16 an hour to closer to 20. When it's taxing on your, on your mind and your heart and your soul, you know, it kind of makes a difference to have that $20 spot. Since the new money started flowing, Oregon has helped an additional 16,000 people with these kinds of addiction services. It was a $30 million investment. There's hundreds of millions yet to come. Many agree it's going to take more than raising pay by a few dollars an hour to attract and keep staff. One mentor serves about 10 to 15 people, ideally. Heather Jafaris is the executive director of the Oregon Council for Behavioral Health. She says this shortage has a direct impact on care. So every peer that is not hired, that's 10 or 15 people that don't get service. Jafaris and her colleagues are working on solutions. They're trying to make training programs accessible and raise pay even more across the industry. Meanwhile, Club Hope Executive Director Monta Knutson says his employees are still stretched thin, but they're doing their best to meet their clients' needs and manage their own emotional health. I've never seen a person that's not attached in some way, you know. It's impossible not to be. Right. I mean, you're, you're in the human helping environment. Caring is the job, says Knutson, and with caring sometimes comes heartache. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Gresham, Oregon. Chuck Flom was a man who got things done. 
he wanted to become a pilot, so he got his pilot's license. He wanted to build a company, and so he built a very large and very successful company here in southwestern Ohio. And it seemed like Flom could do anything. He was an inventor. He was an entrepreneur. He was an expert chef and a musician. And I mean, he was such a renaissance man. Since the pandemic began, we've been remembering some of the nearly one million people who have died of COVID-19 in the U.S., and we've asked you to share their stories with us. Today we remember Charles Flom. He died last September in Springboro, Ohio. His granddaughter, Michelle Flom, says from a young age she was in awe of him, but still he had some very human blind spots. He was very much kind of a 50s era, you know, think kind of madmen in some respects. Sometimes could be, it seemed to me, kind of devaluing of women. Their role was, you know, to be wives and mothers and in the home. I mean, very 50s, you know, in that respect. And from a very young age, I didn't like that. Rather than take him to task, Michelle spent her life proving her grandfather wrong. She's currently a therapist and a professor, and she's written a book. 17 years ago, Michelle nearly died giving birth to her daughter. And it was during this traumatic time that Charles Flom seemed to come around. He said, Michelle, of, of everyone in this family... He said, I'm glad this happened to you. And I kind of looked at him sideways, like, uh, and then I realized, you know, because he said, because no one else could have survived this. And at that moment, you know, he gave me this look, and there have been looks that he's given me over the course of many, many years that, you know, just have suggested that he really kind of has not only seen me for who I am and who I've become, but that he has revised, you know, some of these early beliefs about women. And last September, Michelle got to see her grandfather for who he was. A month after he caught COVID, the 94-year-old knew he was dying. He set aside two hours for a last visit with Michelle, who wasn't sure what to expect. I was expecting kind of vintage grandpa, you know, barking out orders and a little bit gruff at times and kind of enigmatic at times and hard to read. But it was the complete opposite. He put out his hand immediately and he wanted to hold my hand, um, which this was not a grandfather that was a hand holder. For two hours, they held hands and talked about their lives. He told me about buying Neil Armstrong a drink and told me about, you know, meeting and shaking hands with Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, these are, you know, some of his heroes and he was so proud. True to his can-do nature, her grandfather had a plan even at the end. His final wish was to die at home instead of in the hospital. So he spent his last week weaning himself off of oxygen so he could survive being transported back. A day or so after he got home, Flum died. It was pretty phenomenal. And at the same time, there was no part of me that was surprised that he made it home because he said that's what was going to happen. To the very end, Chuck Flom was a man who got things done. If you'd like us to memorialize a loved one you've lost to COVID-19, find us on Twitter at NPRATC. There's a pinned tweet at the top of the page. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Princess Cruises, featuring medallion-class technology for a personalized cruise experience 
while staying connected to loved ones with more than 330 destinations. Learn more at princess.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all of their job openings. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox blank the Braves in spring training play today, 5 to nothing. Celtics and Bruins are both on the road tonight. Celtics take on Oklahoma City at 8 o'clock. The Bees play Montreal at 7 o'clock. Temperatures falling to about 35 degrees overnight tonight. A strong wind. That wind should continue tomorrow. Gusts through the day. Bright spring sunshine tomorrow. Highs just about 50. The 40s on Wednesday with partly sunny skies. 54 degrees now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AVFX, offering sophisticated event services in person, online, or some combination of the two, bringing them to life at avfx.com events. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This afternoon at the Capitol, Senate confirmation hearings began for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She's the first black woman nominated for the nation's highest court. Judge Jackson, you are writing a new page in the history of America. A good page. It's Monday, March 21st. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Russian forces have shown few signs of advancing on the capital of Ukraine, but they're still actively destroying the country. In the southern port city of Mariupol, Russian bombs targeted a school that was sheltering about 400 displaced people. We'll hear from Massachusetts Congressman Lori Trahan about her trip this weekend to Poland to see Ukrainian refugees firsthand. And researchers say that purported grassroots efforts to ban books in the U.S. are being driven by powerful partisan organizations. It's 6 The more I started looking at these groups, I started seeing really overt connections to the kinds of organizations that do this routinely. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson, Russian troops used stun grenades and fired in the air to break up demonstrators. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky hailed the protesters as heroes. President Biden travels to Brussels and Warsaw this week to meet with allies. The Senate Judiciary Committee has wrapped its first day of confirmation hearings for President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She stressed her impartiality, NPR's Susan Davis reports. Saudi Arabia's foreign ministry says if there are global oil supply shortages, the responsibility should not fall to the Saudis. This after oil installations were attacked by Houthi rebels in Yemen. We get more on this story from NPR's Jackie Northam. President Biden is urging U.S. companies to make sure their digital doors are locked tight 
because of evolving intelligence that Russia is considering launching cyber attacks against critical infrastructure targets as the war in Ukraine continues. Biden's top cybersecurity aide, Ann Neuberger, expressed frustration at a White House press briefing Monday that some critical infrastructure entities have ignored alerts from federal agencies to fix known problems in software that could be exploited by Russian hackers. The federal government has been providing warnings to U.S. companies of the threats posed by Russian hackers since long before the country invaded Ukraine last month. The Biden administration is expanding travel bans on Chinese officials whom it accuses of repressing ethnic and religious minorities. The State Department is saying it will bar those targeted from traveling to the U.S., due to their involvement in crackdowns on freedom of speech and religion in China and abroad. The department did not identify which officials would be subject to the expanded ban, nor how many. The move adds to visa restrictions originally imposed by the Trump administration over China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims in the western region of Xinjiang, as well as for repression of pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong and advocates for freedom in Tibet. The Supreme Court says that Justice Clarence Thomas has been hospitalized in Washington after being diagnosed with an infection but does not have COVID-19. The high court announced yesterday that the 73-year-old conservative had entered the hospital Friday after experiencing flu-like symptoms and underwent tests. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's the first afternoon rush hour for the MBTA's Green Line extension into Somerville, and it's still running on schedule. This morning, service began on the first two legs of the subway line, the new ones. WBUR's Daryl C. Murphy caught the first train to leave Union Square Station before dawn. Passengers paid their fares like any other trip and boarded the train set to roll at 4.50 a.m. MBTA General Manager Steve Povtak was among those on board. What we see today is, is really a great thing. And it's a really, it's a gratifying day for, I know, for everyone here who's from the area, but also for the MBTA. Ravi Halasi of Somerville says he looks forward to simpler trips into Boston. It's going to be great to have a single seat downtown now, not have to worry about taking the bus and transferring. It'll make things a lot easier. The rail line to Medford is expected to open later this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The extension that opened today took four years to construct. The average price of gasoline in the state is holding steady from yesterday. The latest survey by AAA Northeast puts the average at $4.26 a gallon. That's down nine cents from a week ago. A spokeswoman for AAA says demand for gasoline was down slightly last week because of the high cost of gas. The rate of COVID-19 tests coming back positive in Massachusetts appears to be stabilizing. The Department of Public Health reports the seven-day average rate is 1.68 percent. That's up slightly from last week, but well below the peak earlier this year of more than 23 percent. Nearly 1,700 people have tested positive since Friday. That's up 10 percent from last Monday's report. Health officials say 217 people are in hospitals in the state with COVID. That is down 8 percent 
from last week. The state's highest court is relaxing the mask mandate in Massachusetts courthouses as of Wednesday. The order the Supreme Judicial Court announced today removes the mandate but encourages people to still wear masks if they're not fully vaccinated or if they're at increased risk for severe illness. People with COVID symptoms will not be allowed to enter courthouses at all. New federal funding aims to reduce the risk of coastal flooding along the Mystic and Charles Rivers in the Boston area. Congresswoman Catherine Clark says $750,000 will benefit nine vulnerable communities, including Boston, Cambridge, Malden, Medford, and Chelsea. We know how devastating coastal flooding would be to the families and businesses in these communities. And with this funding, we're taking the steps necessary to mitigate it. Clark secured the funding to be included in the 2022 fiscal year budget. President Biden signed that into law last week. A man shot on an MBTA bus this morning is being treated at a hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. Transit police say the shooting happened near Morton and Blue Hill Ave just before 10.30 today. The victim is a 30-year-old who was shot in the leg. It appears the victim and shooter had been arguing. No arrests have been made. In the forecast, sunshine through the evening hours, then overnight tonight, moonlit skies, a cold wind in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunshine's back again, should be a little bit cooler, topping out at about 50. Then for Wednesday, partly sunny with highs in the upper 40s. 54 degrees now in Boston at 607. WBUR supporters include the News Leaders Association, supporting the First Amendment and seeking to empower news leaders to build diverse, sustainable newsrooms to inform and engage the communities they reflect and serve. More at newsleaders.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the big picture, Russian forces invading Ukraine have shown almost no signs of advancing in the last week, according to a senior U.S. defense official today. But that defense official also noted that Russia has increased artillery shelling lately, including against civilians. Yesterday, a deadly attack in Kiev flattened a shopping center in the capital. In the southern port city of Mariupol this weekend, bombs targeted an art school, which was sheltering about 400 displaced people. Food and water are running low in Mariupol, electricity is out, but Ukrainian and local officials refuse to surrender the city. NPR's Jason Bobian joins us from Lviv in western Ukraine. Hi, Jason. Hey, Ari. Help us understand this latest round of Russian artillery attacks, given that this U.S. defense official is saying it has not resulted in military advances. Yeah, I mean, there really haven't big big advances, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, but what is happening at the moment is that you're getting these artillery strikes on multiple fronts. And while the forces seem to have been stalled on the outskirts of Kyiv, these missiles, these mortars, these shells are coming in very close uh, to, to neighborhoods that are right near the center of the city. Uh, you're also getting intense fighting and shelling continuing along the eastern side of the country, facing the border with Russia, you know, cities such as Kharkiv, Sumy, uh, they're getting shelled pretty intensely. Uh, here in Lviv, the air raid sirens went off five times today and everyone had to trudge down to the bomb shelters. You know, Russia also launched airstrikes north of here in what both Ukrainian and Russian officials say was on a military training facility. But what was different about that was that this was in an area of the country that had been pretty calm, uh, hadn't had many missile strikes, and it contains one of Ukraine's nuclear power plants. Let's zoom into the city of Mariupol, which has been under siege for weeks. There are reports yeah. of a humanitarian crisis. What can you tell us about the situation there? 
Yeah, I mean, some of the most intense fighting and shelling is going on in Mariupol. You know, it sits on the Sea of Azov um, in Russian warships. They're offshore. Russian planes are pounding it from the air. Russian ground troops claim they're tightening a noose around it on land. Yesterday, officials in Moscow called for the Ukrainian troops in Mariupol to surrender. Uh, Ukrainian officials, in much more colorful language than this, said no way. And the two sides also can't agree on a ceasefire to allow the tens of thousands of civilians who remain there, trapped there, to leave. Today in the largest soccer stadium here in Lviv, I met a group of neighbors who just fled out of Mariupol. They'd spent two weeks sheltering in the basement of their apartment block as Russian troops and planes pounded the city with mortars and artillery. Tetyana Muhilova says it was hell on earth. Uh, there is no water, no heating, no gas, no anything. And uh, under the shelling, we try to prepare food on f open fire uh, to be able to eat at least once a day. Uh, we were all covered in dirt. And uh, the person who never experienced such a thing, it's even hard to like imagine what it's like. She says out on the streets of Mariupol, in her words, everything was in ruins. Buildings were on fire. Others were burned out. Ukrainian troops continued to patrol in tanks, but Russian aircraft buzzed over the city. Her mother-in-law went out to try to find food and never returned. Dead bodies lay uncollected in the street. There was a man who was lying on the street near us for two days. Nobody could take him away. When Muhelova's apartment took a direct hit from a projectile, the group of neighbors started to worry that the five-story building might collapse on top of them, and they decided they had to leave. Under the constant shelling, uh, f first we uh, we took our car from the garage and right away the shell attacked it and totally destroyed the car. So we were left without the car. So our brother gave us his car. One of the other cars ran over shrapnel and destroyed its tires. In the end, 13 of them packed into a pair of cars. There were eight people in a tiny Soviet-era boxy Lada and five in a Skoda sedan as they drove towards the line of Russian troops blocking the road north into the heart of Ukraine. Russians stopped uh, our car, they checked our documents, asked do we have any weapons or anything like knives and stuff, and then they just let us go. When they got to Lviv two days ago, they used some of their savings to stay in a hotel room for the night. Muhilova says they all needed to soak in the shower. But today, they were here at this soccer stadium. Their only worldly goods were some clothes jammed into plastic bags at their feet. And they were waiting for the volunteers at this assistance center to find them a place to sleep tonight. That's our correspondent, Jason Bobian, who is in western Ukraine reporting there on people who have fled the city of Mariupol. Uh, Jason is still with us. And yeah. I'd like to ask you about something we've heard reports of, which is that people from Mariupol are being forced to go to Russia. Is there evidence that that is happening? You know, it's very hard to get solid information out of Mariupol right now. The, the Russians are saying Ukrainians are voluntarily leaving Mariupol for Russia. Ukrainian officials say, without offering really any solid evidence, that people are getting shipped to Siberia. You know, there are no aid agencies or other independent sources there right now. Uh, one of Muhilova's neighbors that I talked to at the soccer stadium today, he said he's heard some of these rumors that people are being forced to go to Russia. But he said, you know, in the midst of this ferocious aerial bombardment, the bottom line is that people in Mariupol currently face a choice, he said. You try to get to Ukraine, you try to get to Russia, or you die. And in the meantime, as you say, there is no agreement on any kind of humanitarian corridor that would allow people to escape. That's right. Yeah. 
NPR's Jason Bobian in Lviv in western Ukraine. Thank you very much. You're welcome. The Senate Judiciary Committee began hearings today on the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. If confirmed, she would be the first black woman on the court, as well as one of a record four female justices serving at the same time. Joining us now is NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Hey, Nina. Hey there, Juana. So, Nina, how did this first day go for her? Look, this was her easy day. She spent most of this morning and afternoon looking pleasant and interested, even smiling, as the 22 members of the Judiciary Committee made their opening remarks. And then, in the end, it was her turn. As she said when President Biden announced her nomination, the very first thing she said was that she thanked God for her blessings. Being born in modern times in a nation where civil rights laws had changed life in Florida, where her parents were from originally, so much that they returned to live there. And she spoke about the influence of her family and uh, mentors, singling out the man she would replace on the court if she's confirmed, Justice Stephen Breyer. It is extremely humbling to be considered for Justice Breyer's seat, and I know that I could never fill his shoes. But if confirmed, I would hope to carry on his spirit. She told the senators that she would strive to do her job impartially, noting that she's been a judge for nearly a decade now, and that she takes her responsibility very seriously, an important point because of some of the pointed statements from Republican lawmakers. I have been a judge for nearly a decade now, and I take that responsibility and my duty to be independent very seriously. I decide cases from a neutral posture. I evaluate the the facts, and I interpret and apply the law to the facts of the case before me without fear or favor, consistent with my judicial oath. Nina, aside from that opening statement, what else stood out to you from this first day of the hearing? Well, Senator Lindsey Graham, who often votes for Democratic nominees because he thinks it's the president's prerogative to name people to the courts as long as they're qualified and, as senators always put it, in the mainstream. But today he was a senator with a grievance because the nominee that he had supported Judge Michelle Childs from South Carolina, who's also African-American, was not chosen. And while he voted for Jackson's confirmation to the Court of Appeals just months ago, it sure didn't sound like he was going to do it this time. Of the left to take down a nominee for my state. And I don't like it very much. So what about that, Nina? Is he right? Was there a wholesale effort from the left? I think the short answer to that is probably not. It was always my understanding that Judge Jackson had the inside track, that she was the leading candidate from the get-go. And while uh, Senator Graham said that uh, Judge Childs would have gotten 60-plus votes, I think that's probably a bit doubtful. He also said that because Judge Childs was not chosen— we are now facing a choice sponsored by the most radical elements of the left. So he was trying to attach uh, to Judge Jackson the views of some of the people who supported her, some of whom really are quite left. But I don't think that at any time 
Judge Childs was really going to get the nomination. She had the support of the Democratic whip in the House, and he was very aggressive about supporting her, as you might expect, but I never thought that was going to work. All right. That's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. We'll be following your coverage all week. Thank you. Thank you. By 1972, Congress had approved the Equal Rights Amendment, barring discrimination on account of a person's sex. Fifty years later, it still hasn't actually made it into the U.S. Constitution. Tomorrow on this program, a look back at the history of the ERA and the debate over whether it should ever become law. On your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Congresswoman Lori Trahan on her visit to Ukraine's border with Poland, where refugees are flooding in to escape attacks by Russia. Also, the climate impact of astronomy. Those stories are just ahead. In business, a class action lawsuit's been filed today against Mansfield-based Creative Services for two data breaches last year. The suit claims Creative Services failed to provide uh, properly secure and protect the personal information of candidates for employment that it ran background checks on. The suit alleges the breaches exposed information about more than 164,000 people, including Social Security numbers. WBR has reached out to Creative Services for comment. The company has earlier acknowledged a breach and said it was offering credit monitoring to those who were affected. Stocks skidded on Wall Street today. The Dow snapped a five-day winning streak to lose more than a half percent, 202 points, to close at 34,553. S&P lost a tiny fraction to finish at 4461, and the Nasdaq fell less than a half percent to end the day at 13,838. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. In the forecast, nice evening going. Clear moonless skies overnight tonight. Should be in the mid-30s. Some gusty winds around. Then for tomorrow, another sunny day. Not as mild as today has been, though. Topping out around 50. Still on the windy side. It's 6.21. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast, working to build and evolve a reliable network to keep customers connected. Learn more at comcast.com network. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. A group of U.S. lawmakers led by Massachusetts Congressman Stephen Lynch spent the weekend in Poland to see firsthand the plight of refugees who have fled Ukraine since it was invaded by Russia. Congressman Lori Trahan was part of the seven-member bipartisan delegation, and she joins us now from Eastern Europe. Congresswoman, thanks for talking with us. You were just in two Polish cities not too far from the Ukrainian border and visited a refugee assistance center and a border entry point. What did you learn at both spots? Well, I think what I learned on the ground is um, 
is the true devastation that is happening in Ukraine, right? Families are being separated from one another, having to make difficult decisions. You know, you know, moms and their children are fleeing these cities that have become besieged while, um, you know, men and, uh, you know, brothers and dads are, are staying back uh, to fight. And, you know, I saw that when I visited the Tor War uh, Refugee Assistance Center, uh, and I saw that when I was in Zhejiang um, at the train station. Um, you spoke with a, a woman from Lviv who, uh, you know, is hopeful that she's going to get to return, um, but of course anxious um, because, uh, you know, she's left so much behind, uh, including, you know, her husband and her, you know, her her grandfather, her father, excuse me. And uh, it was just everything that we're seeing play out on TV. Um, it, it, to be here and to have the conversations and to see it up close, um, it's just really intense. And it, it's, uh, it's been an emotional, it's been an emotional couple of days. And when you spoke with that woman and other refugees, in fact, uh, who came to Poland, what did they tell you they need most right now? Uh, well, you know, certainly, uh, I think most folks are so grateful for the, the community um, in Poland, right? I mean, there's over 2 million refugees from the, uh, Ukraine who have come to Poland, and they're not staying in, in camps. Uh, they're staying in people's homes. Uh, and so the outpouring of you know, love and support has been, um, has been incredible. Um, and they're, uh, they're also grateful for all the aid that is coming to their country. Um, and they're, they're astute, right? They know that um, they've got a conviction and, and a resolve to fight, uh, to fight tyranny, to fight autocracy, to fight against this unjustified invasion uh, by Vladimir Putin. And, and they want weapons, right? They want, uh, they want to have the, the ability to fight for their freedom, and and they and they understand the stakes of, of what's on the line. They understand that this is a, a fight for democracy worldwide, and so they're very clear uh, in what they want from the international community um, as they you know as as they uh, you know fight uh, on the on the front lines of, of this unjustified invasion. So, what about the U.S.'s part in this international community and the contributions made? Congress. Recently approved, as you know, more than $13 billion in aid for Ukraine, and that includes about $1 billion in direct military assistance. Are you convinced yet on this trip that the money will be going exactly where it's directed? Yes. You know, I got to meet with the uh, the NGOs who have been an unbelievable force on the ground. Um, they're putting that money to work uh, immediately. I, I got to obviously visit our, our military um, bases here, and, you know, the the efficiency by which, uh, you know, those stingers and those javelins and those, those, those anti-armor systems are getting to, to folks right on the front line has been incredible. It's been an incredible uh, logistical challenge, of course, but, you know, they're working through that with our, with our NATO partners and our allies. And so, look, I was proud to support uh, and vote for the, um, the $13.6 billion in aid uh, to Ukraine, and we're con- we're going to continue um, to be there for uh, for the Ukrainian people. Which brings me to the next question: to your constituents who might be wondering why so many tax dollars are going to this particular conflict and these particular refugees, what's your response? Uh, look, I think people understand exactly what's at stake right now. Um, this is this is a peaceful, democratic, uh, sovereign neighbor 
who was just invaded um, by a deranged uh, authoritarian uh, leader. And, uh, and we've seen this in our history before. Uh, and it is, uh, it is on us. This is why we have NATO. This is why the, the response has been so swift and so united and so strong is because we understand what's at stake uh, because we've been here before. And, uh, and I think that people understand that. People who call my office, um, they, they completely understand. They're, they're supportive of, of the aid package. Uh, and, you know, frankly, you know, there's, there are calls to do more, if anything. And so I think that it's an important moment in our history uh, to defend democracy, to defend freedom, uh, and to not allow a, a ruthless dictator to trample on the rights of a, of a peaceful democratic neighbor. Congresswoman Lori Trahan joining us from Eastern Europe. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Astronomers spend their careers looking up at the sky away from our planet. Now, though, some of them are thinking about how all this stargazing affects the Earth, specifically its climate. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports. Scientists at a French astrophysics laboratory called IRAP were recently trying to estimate their lab's contribution to global warming. And astronomer Annie Hughes says they wondered about all the telescopes they used, the ones launched into space or built on remote mountaintops. No study had ever tried to calculate the carbon emissions due to the construction and operation of all the telescopes and space missions that astronomers use to make observations. So she and her colleagues did just that for nearly 50 space-based missions and 40 ground-based telescopes. Astronomer Jürgen Knodelsader says every year, all these telescopes are responsible for the equivalent of about 20 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. Just to give you some perspective, 20 million tons of CO2, this is the annual carbon footprint of countries like Estonia, Croatia or Bulgaria. He says it's like every astronomer was driving a car over 100,000 miles every year. The report appears in the journal Nature Astronomy. Travis Rector is an astrophysicist at the University of Alaska in Anchorage. He says astronomers know their greenhouse gas emissions are a problem. It's, it's a high priority. Every observatory that I've talked with and just about every astronomer knows that this is something that's important. They're discussing everything from more solar power to holding science conferences virtually to reduce travel. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox blanked Atlanta today 5-0. Bruins are in Montreal tonight. Celtics are in Oklahoma. Patriots are trying to shore up their offensive line. Today, the team re-signed Trent Brown to a two-year deal. He's six foot eight, weighs 380 pounds. Brown only played nine games last season because of a calf injury. And the Bruins have been busy on this trade deadline day in the NHL. The Bees have traded Zach Senishin to the Ottawa Senators and exchange defenseman Josh Brown will come to Boston. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Vivaldi's Gloria and JS and CPE Bach, April 1st and 3rd at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Bicon Dental Implants, 
offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. And Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com.